Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker will be speaking to Dr. Alex Chu about his article, Topical Antibiotic Therapy in Chronic Rhinosinusitis, an update. This edition of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Carl Storrs Endoscopy America. Carl Storrs modular NAV1 image guidance for optical and electromagnetic features reusable navigated instruments for significant cost savings. It is mobile, scalable, and customizable while minimizing setup time, setup errors, and staff frustration. Visit www.carlstores.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. David Petker. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Alex Chu, Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology at the University of Kansas, and he and I will be discussing his article entitled, Topical Antibiotic Therapy in Chronic Rhinosinusitis, an Update. Alex, welcome and thanks very much for joining the podcast today. Hey, good afternoon, David, and uh, thanks for having me. Well, you know, Tim Smith normally does this. Uh, he normally hosts the podcast, but he's come down with a spilkus and asked me to cover. So I appreciate you being willing to talk to the JV no, team no, no, today. No, David, this is, this is the eight team. I'm, I'm glad the I got to miss that other guy <laughs> and I got to do this with you. Yeah, good, good, good. So tell me about... What, you, what got you interested in the topical therapy? And, uh, you know, I know you've done research from uh, years ago with topical antibiotics in vivo studies. So give me a little bit of the history on your interest and your experience with it. Yeah, you know, David, it's something that we've always done. And if you talk to the mentors who trained us, they always had a magic solution. Wilson's solution was the big one back in the early 80s. Genomycin along with a couple other uh, magic potions, and we would irrigate out our patients. And it kind of just goes to that uh, that problem we have in that there are some patients that we just can't solve, whether it be through good surgery or, or good traditional medical therapy, we still have symptomatic patients. Mm-hmm. So there's a role, a niche for something um, for these difficult, these recalcitrant patients and topical therapies, and specifically topical antimicrobials has always been presumed to have a role in sinusitis uh, management. And so I've, I've, I've done this ever since I've gotten out of fellowship, and I remember doing my fellowship with Winston Vaughn at Stanford back in 2002. And mm-hmm. Dr. Vaughn uh, was the original author of the Nebulized Antibiotic Study. And that was really one of the first forays of our otolaryngology community into more formally studying topical antibiotics. So having done my fellowship with Winston and, and, and catching the bug, <laughs> so to speak, uh, about one. topical therapeutics, I started my career investigating it. And so mm-hmm. uh, with the help of Noam Cohen at the University of Pennsylvania, we started animal studies uh, looking at first causing sinusitis in the New Zealand white rabbit and then treating that rabbit with various different antimicrobials. And we started off doing pseudomonal sinus infections and treating them with topical tilbromycin. And then we had a, a, a couple of different clinical trials looking at antimicrobial peptides and different surfactants, uh, all these agents looking at, um, at how can we defeat difficult to, to treat bacteria such as pseudomonas or staph aureus. The the goal of this paper was to update the literature and what's been published since the EPOS guideline and the ICAR statement and things. So what did you find in your literature review? So this is one of those things, David, where in the previous, the IFAR, the ICOS review, and the EPOS statement, there's a paucity of 
good literature out there. And so yeah. what we mean by that, obviously, is a lack of double-blind placebo-controlled trials. And as a result, the recommendations have been against the use of topical antibiotics for the treatment of chronic myelinocytosis. You and I both know, though, that there is a place for it. It may be limited, but there is a place. And so what we wanted to do is to update the literature, uh, look at the past four years since the last IFAR position statement came out on topical therapies and see if there's any new literature that can shed any light on the use of topical antimicrobials. And, and I get the impression, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression from reading your manuscript that you are, like me, a believer in topical antibiotics. It's just that the right study may not have been done yet. Is that yeah, a fair statement? A of, yeah, a lot of studies that have been quoted look at low volume or sprays or nebulized antimicrobials. And we all know that really the key to special sauce is those high volume irrigations. It, you need you need to get that topical therapeutic deep into the maxillary sinus along the floor of the maxillary sinus and the anterior wall, where oftentimes a lot of that you know biofilm is located, and so a spray or nebulizer just isn't going to get there. So I, I don't think topical antimicrobials have necessarily gotten a fair shot from the literature reviews, just because we haven't really looked at the high volume irrigation. And so we looked at, at, at a series of papers and we found a couple that that speak to that point. And by um, high volume, what's in your book, what's high volume? 100 mils, 240 mils? What would you say? Yeah, I would say 240 mils. And okay. there are some also some different pulsating aerosols that, that people have investigated. But certainly in my book, it would be a high volume 240 cc bottle. You mentioned a couple different things. The culture-directed therapy. Now, getting back to Winston's study, if you look at the published literature all the randomized controlled trials have not been culture-directed, except for Correct. the, the Jarvis-Bardi study um, out of Australia looking at mupiracin. They did confirm that uh, that it was um, uh, a staph aureus, and that did show that. But what's your take on the importance of culture-directed antibiotics in this situation with a topical antibiotic and, and in these studies? Yeah, I, I agree with you, David. If you look at the evidence and you combine it with our um, anecdotal experience, mupiracin is by far the most uh, effective antimicrobial. And it's only really going to be effective, though, uh, in gram-positive organisms, especially Staph aureus. So uh, many times, you know, mupiracin used for those patients are going to be helpful. Now, we published a study actually looking at the dangers of using mupiracin for too long. Um, and what we found is actually what you can do to a patient is switch them from a gram-positive culture to a gram-negative culture. So mm-hmm. it kind of speaks to the power of what we're doing. One is I'm, in one breath I'm telling you that antimicrobials do have a place, but then now I'm telling you, well, you know, you guys got to be careful as to how long you use it and who you use it on. If you just indiscriminately use it and keep it on a patient for a month on end, they'll come back with a gram-negative infection. Interesting. Interesting. What about duration of therapy? You know, so the studies that you had uh, mentioned in your paper, the duration of therapy, you know, they talked about using a few drops for a week to um, high volume for, you know, several weeks. Tell me about what your, your thoughts about the duration of therapy and, and where you fall on that uh, that spectrum. Yeah, you know, at this point, the literature is all over the place. There hasn't really been a, a prescribed uh, treatment regimen. We always think for maximal medical therapy of using antibiotics at the minimum of three weeks to six weeks. 
that paper I just referenced to you, uh, the car paper about the overuse of topicals, has me a little skittish on using it more than three weeks at a time. So even if, if I personally use a tobramycin or genomycin for a gram-negative infection or mupiracin for a gram-positive infection, I limit it to three weeks and then see them back in the office and see how they're doing. Any concern about a systemic absorption with these topicals? It's a great question, David. I think mupiracin is very safe. And in fact, mupiracin in Australia was over the counter for a period of time. But obviously, uh, uh, gentamicin and tobamicin do have its dangers. And Rick Chandra published an article probably about 10 years ago that looked at uh, patients who were getting uh, gentamicin nasal irrigations and found that sensory neural high frequency hearing loss in a number of those patients. So I do think yeah. there's. Um, a bit of concern when you're using aminoglycosides uh, to limit its use. Some of these studies, and, and not just the ones that have been published since the EPO statement and the ICAR statement, they've included cystic fibrosis patients. Now, do you think it's fair to include cystic fibrosis patients in these cohorts uh, and compare those to patients with more traditional chronic sinusitis? Yeah, I agree with you, David. I mean, there we all know cystic fibrosis patients. They're just a different type of, of patient population. Right, right. Um, they also have different pneumonization patterns of their sinuses as well. So, again, we're, we're saying that it's not just the antimicrobial. It's the delivery methodology as well. So if we're going to mm-hmm. test it in a slightly different patient population who has different pneumatized perinasal sinuses, um, you know, that's a tough one to to come down on a topical uh, antibiotic if it doesn't seem to have much benefit. Do you have um, trouble getting topical antibiotics covered by insurance? I have to admit, uh, for immunoglycosides, you can, they can be a challenge, but their generic versions are fairly inexpensive. Um, and certainly topical mupiracin is, is generic and, and very inexpensive. So um, I haven't had an issue. Now, there are other some boutique companies out there with uh, – um, and I hope they don't get mad at me for saying this, but using different IV antibiotics for bugs, and you'll get some exotic fourth-generation cephalosporins or IV therapeutics that they'll apply, and they'll and you can go to that company and try to get that. I don't know if I'm fully behind all that because that hasn't really been studied. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's the devil you know and the devil you don't know. We know the effects of genomycin. We know the effects of mupiracin. I have no idea what topical vancomycin is that ever gets absorbed into the sinuses. What about ciliary toxicity? Do you know, has that ever been looked at? You know, you are a much better host than Tim Smith. You've actually uh, studied up and, and read the literature. And you, you well, I don't think that's going to surprise anybody, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely, David. And, you know, you know, a couple of those trials I alluded to earlier at Penn where we looked at antimicrobial peptides and anti-pseudomonal agents, what we ended up doing was not only eradicating the infection, but we wiped out the cilia. Uh, well, I mean, wiped it out. So if you looked at scanning EM, you just saw a carpet bomb and the cilia were gone. So I do think um, we've got to stick to the things we know that aren't going to be toxic. And whenever you stray and try to get a little adventurous, uh, you always bring in the potential for unintended consequences. Right. Another question about the antibiotics. You know, so so one of the, the obvious criticisms about the topical antibiotics is the lack of data. But what do you say when people talk about the use of oral antibiotics? Now, that's a kind of a foregone conclusion that people are going to use oral antibiotics for an acute bacterial infection. But there isn't any data to support that either for yeah, randomized I, I, controlled trials and culture-directed things. No, I wholeheartedly agree with you, David. And, and 
I mean, we always, I think we're a little too hard on ourselves, right? We always keep on saying, well, gosh, we don't have this great um, double-blind placebo-controlled trial with a, a two-week washout period and a crossover mm-hmm. at six-week period of time. We just don't have a lot of that period. I right. actually agree with you. Right, um, right. And as you well know, these recalcitrant patients, it, there's many different reasons why things are not going right for these patients, many of which we just don't fully understand quite yet. So... I think it's, it's reasonable to try uh, empiric therapy. I think it's reasonable to try topical antimicrobials. With the caveat being, you got to watch them. you got to bring them back in three or four, four weeks and make sure that they're getting an improvement. Uh, because mm-hmm. certainly I'm sure you've tried everything else prior to that. Right. And, and again, I think you, you keep going back to the re- these recalcitrant patients, and I think that that's important to stress. You know, these aren't the run-of-the-mill patients. You're not just pummeling them with these medications uh, uh, from the get-go. These are the ones that... Are, are failing the good surgeries. They're failing the normal regimen, and uh, you know you're really struck by how difficult it is, and, and kind of stuck as far as how to get these guys better. Yeah, so and, if, and in all honesty, these days, uh, David, this is uh, just an anecdotal or empiric thought for me. Staph aureus is so prevalent these days, um, but I feel like any time I have any exposed bone after a sinus surgery. So say maybe mm-hmm. you do a bigger type of fess or maybe you have a benign tumor that you take off and you expose a ton of bone. I almost nearly always need to start new piercing irrigations on those patients while they're healing up because it just seems to always just get this fetid crusting. Um, and maybe that's just the water in Kansas City, but um, it, it always seems to be an issue. Yeah. And and do you use uh, the tubes of the mupiracin ointment? And mix that with uh, with saline, or do you get the powdered mupirocin from a compounding pharmacy or something along those lines? I kind of go the simple route. I go to the ointment and have them mm-hmm. heat up the the irrigation fluid and then mix it for five minutes or so. How about you? Yeah. Have you had any luck with the powdered uh, mupirocin? Yeah, I you know I think they both work. If someone does not have commercial insurance, it's usually much uh, more of a challenge to get the the powdered form covered. You know, as long as they're getting the right type of mupirocin, that they're getting the the traditional ointment as opposed to the nasal or the uh the cream, it goes into solution very nicely and people do well with that. Sometimes it's a bit of a battle with the uh, the pharmacy just having the right size or enough of the tubes, but my nurses are uh, experts at uh, at getting that kind of thing through. Yeah. So I think it's really pretty easy to do it uh, to do it that way. So if you had to uh, if you had to design a study looking at the effectiveness of topical antibiotics, how would you do it? I think it'd have to be a clean study, David, and and I think that that scenario I gave you where you take a, a tumor patient population, in my mind, um, like an inverted papilloma patient in which you've done a myomaxillectomy, and you've got a control arm in which you just have them do saline irrigations afterwards, and you really actually look for 12 weeks post-op and score them based on their endoscopy score, the presence of crusting, their need for antibiotics post-surgery. And then have an arm in which you actually uh, put people on Mupiracin irrigations for a three or four week period of time afterwards. I'd be interested to see um, data from that show if it showed that putting people routinely on an antimicrobial irrigation and, and a wound healing period, if that actually uh, speeded up the wound healing or limited the, the post-op uh, infections. And I think that just introduces this concept that, yeah, hey, topical antimicrobials have a role in this world. 
because once we start to introduce it in the recalcitrant patient population and design that study, then we really need to standardize the surgery, standardize the uh, access. Uh, we need to, to measure and make sure that the high-volume irrigations are getting to the most consistent spots in every patient that's in the study. And so you're just looking at these really complex, difficult studies uh, that may not give you the results. And that's kind of what we're seeing through this systematic review. It's just It's just really hard to design a good study in a patient population that has just a bunch of things going wrong in it. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, those studies are so hard to do, and there's even standardizing getting two patients that had the exact same surgery. I mean, that's almost impossible in itself. As far as your paper is concerned, is there anything that you think is important that we haven't covered yet in your uh, in, in your paper? I think we covered the highlights. I, I wanted to stress the overuse uh, of topical antimicrobials can be an issue. I wanted yeah. to stress the fact that mupiracine, that there is some evidence showing that mupiracine is effective, especially within a 6 to 12 week period of time for infections. And I wanted to stress uh, the fact that high volume topical antimicrobials are not the same as just an antimicrobial nebulizer or spritzer. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're more effective, and I think the literature bears that out as well. And then finally, Dave, I, do, I wanted to thank, obviously, uh, my co-authors, especially the primary author, Daniel Carlton, who was my fellow who was uh, made to do this paper. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. All right, before I let you go, I want to do something a little fun. Uh, I've got a trivia question for you, and I'll give you the option. You can either choose music, movies, or geography. I'll do, mov- so, I'll do movies for 100, David. Movies for 100. Okay. Now, you and I are almost about the same age, so so I'm sure you have seen this movie. In the 1989 John Hughes movie, Uncle Buck, in what industry does Buck Russell's girlfriend, Shanice Kobolowski, work? I've never seen Uncle Buck, David. I'm uh, going to take, take music for $100. All right. <laughs> So in the 1984 different movie one? Or give me a different movie question. <laughs> I only wrote one trivia question in each section. Uh, All right, so fine. in the 1984 David Bowie hit Blue Jean, what kind of vehicle does Blue Jean have? You know, you, you must have spent a lot more time watching TV and, and, and watching MTV than I did. I have no idea. Let me, let me guess. A Mustang. A police bike. Police bike is the answer, Alex. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great article. Uh, your article's available online at the IFAR website. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Scope It Out podcast. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors.